Uh, just by way of introduction, uh, during the end of the Exodus years, uh, Moses and the children of Israel come through the Red Sea, wilderness wanderings. They're actually getting ready to go into the land of promise. And as they do, they're working their way around Edom. There you can see at the bottom of the map as they'll go up towards the Jordan and get ready to cross there. But as they're winding down this, this time, this stage of life, listen to this event that occurred. Numbers 21, I'm starting at verse 4. The people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And by the way, they had said this 40 years earlier too. There's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Now, of course, it's manna and maybe you and I get tired of, of uh, crackers or Wheaties or whatever we would call that today for 40 years. But it's interesting in Psalms that manna is called the bread of heaven or the food of angels. And they say, we don't like this stuff. It's worthless. So in response, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, a replica of the thing that's causing you trouble. Set it on a pole. Everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. When he sees it, will live, be healed. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So that's the solution. They're probably got a sin problem. They've sinned against God, complaining and sinned against God by complaining against his, his mediator, Moses, as well. And so God judges and he sends these fiery serpents. They bite the people and they die. So they cry out for help. And God says, great, Moses, make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, hoist it up between heaven and earth so people can see it from a distance. And when they're bit, if they'll just look to that image, and remember, it's the image, it's a symbol of the curse, isn't it? It's a symbol of their failure, God's judgment. So they're going to look it up in the image of their own judgment and looking, they're going to be healed. Now, if you were back in that day or if you had a friend back in that day and let's say that friend got bit and they came to you and they said, please pray for me. I've been bitten by the serpent. They'd come to you and you'd pray for them and what would happen to them? They'd die. And let's say they get 10 people better than themselves, holier than themselves, and they pray for them. What happens? They die. And let's say they take a guilt offering to the tabernacle and they offer the guilt offering. What happens to them? They die. They didn't do the one thing God said. They could do anything under the sun they wanted. It wouldn't matter what it was. The outcome would always be the same. They'd die. Do anything you want except one and you'll die. But if you'll do the one thing God said, you'll be healed. And you'll be healed entirely. So if you just look at that image, that thing that represents your sin and guilt hoisted on a pole between heaven and earth, if you'll just look at the symbol of your guilt and God's deliverance, you'll live. Do anything except what God says, you'll die. doesn't matter what. Do the one thing God says, you'll be healed, and you'll be healed entirely. Now this, this is leading us into today's message, which is Christ alone you know, we're in the Reformation series, the five solas of the Reformation, and today we're going to be looking at solus Christus, or Christ alone. And if you guys have been here through the Sunday schools and the messages the last several weeks, 
it's interesting to me, it's been so encouraging because you never get beyond the truths of the gospel. No matter how long you're a Christian, no matter how widely you travel, no matter how deep your studies are, you never get beyond the elemental things of the faith. In this sense, you never get beyond the authority of the scriptures, that God's word is the thing that will inspire and convict and help you. You never get beyond faith alone. Faith is the thing that pleases God. It's what lays hold of God's promises. You never get beyond grace alone. You don't deserve any of the good things God's given us, but his grace is poured out on us in Christ. And we never get beyond Christ alone. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. By way of setting the stage, I'm going to give some context for the gospel that was being preached during the Reformation era. And frankly, it's the same gospel that's being preached today by the Roman Catholic Church. I want to be very clear on this. Uh, in this message, and we talked about this in Sunday school, I want to be very clear on the message of the gospel and what a non-gospel, false gospel is. And I want to be very soft on people wherever I can be. I want to be empathetic and sympathetic towards people who are without Christ. Wouldn't wish that on anyone. Very clear on the gospel, soft where we can be on people. So, the means of gaining eternal life or God's standard of righteousness or surviving context of the theme from Numbers 21, the bite of the serpent, as taught by the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation and today, rules out Christ alone as the means of salvation or life or justification. Basically, in the Roman version of the gospel, we could call it a non-gospel because it's not good news. In the Roman version of the gospel, Jesus made the possibility of forgiveness a reality. The possibility is there, but not a certain promise. My wife, Kathy, describes it this way, and most of you know both of us were raised as Roman Catholics. I have 12 years of Catholic education. I spoke Latin as an altar boy at the Mass. My wife has 16 years of Catholic education, so we have a little bit of experience with this. Kathy said her version as a kid was, Jesus died to open the gates of heaven so that you now get yourself through. So Jesus provides the possibility of atonement, but not any necessary atonement. Generally, you know, whenever you speak against someone else's position, you want to state it in a way that's true to what they say and think. Now, as the other guys can tell you, when you try and get context from the Roman Catholic Church on their official teachings, uh, you enter a labyrinth. And if you, you can go to the Vatican website. I'd encourage you to do so just so you have a little bit of a sense of this. Uh, you can look up the Council of Trent, the findings of the Council of Trent. You can look up anything, the 95 uh, Catechism for the United States in English, etc., etc. And guys, I'll tell you, you can read page after page after page and at the end of it, scratch your head and say, I'm not sure what I just read, but that's, that's the Roman Catholic theology. I'm serious. It's very difficult to get through. So I'm not quoting the Catholics directly. I'm quoting R.C. Sproul from his book, Are We Together? Some of you have memories long enough to Remember, in 1994, there was a movement of some prominent evangelicals and some prominent Roman Catholics, and they called this movement Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And their desire wasn't to say we agree on all points of theology, but to say we agree on some key points, and we want to say that publicly so that we can speak with one voice about social and ethical issues of the day. Well, there were numerous evangelicals, and frankly, Roman Catholics also, who said we think this is a bad idea because we're giving the impression that we agree in ways that we really don't. And R.C. Sproul was one of those. And so his book, Are We Together, was, was suggesting, no, we're not together in significant ways. So I'm going to read from that book just a couple of things he says about baptism 
and then penance to get some sense of what the gospel was that Luther and others were responding to. So he says this, Rome holds that baptism conveys grace. Let's see if I can keep us up to speed here. And, and the grace that is conveyed by baptism is the grace of regeneration. This means that when a person is baptized, he's born again of the Spirit, and the disposition of his soul is changed, leaving him justified in the sight of God. That's a pretty good deal. Now, frankly, that's not what the Bible teaches on baptism anyway. But this would be okay if you started there, I got baptized, I'm clean, I'm sort of good to go. However, even though baptism cleanses a person of the power and guilt of original sin, and that's key in Roman Catholic baptism, and infuses into him the grace of justification, it does not leave him perfectly sanctified. There's still something of the nature of sin left over. According to Rome, sins that are committed after baptism, of course, this is almost every Roman Catholic, especially mortal sins, destroy the justifying grace of baptism, which makes it necessary for a person to be justified again. Mortal sins are called mortal because they have the power and capacity to destroy the grace of justification that comes in baptism. Then he says, he appends, the sacrament of penance is designed to solve this problem. So if you come up to a Roman Catholic and say, Christ alone saves us, they say, no, no, no. Because Christ alone is not enough to save because the church is the one that dispenses baptism. So you need the church to be saved. And by the way, if you read Roman Catholic theology on this, God is your spiritual father, but the church is your mother. That's the language. You are born again through the Roman Catholic Church. You, you can't be born again apart from through the Roman Catholic Church. So the church is your mother. The church is the means by which you gain spiritual rebirth. So that's significant in and of itself. You have to have the church. Christ alone is not enough to declare you righteous because a priesthood dispenses baptism and the other sacraments. So you've got to have the church and you've got to have the priesthood also. Christ alone is not enough. And Christ alone is not enough to give you eternal life because the sacrament of penance is now necessary also. And we'll line that out here in just a second. But Christ alone in the Roman Catholic version of the gospel, which is no gospel at all, you've got to have the church, you've got to have priesthood, you've got to have sacrifices, you've got to have meritorious works of righteousness, or you don't get in. This is what Sproul says about penance and forgiveness of sins per the Roman Catholic Church. He says there are three dimensions. And again, this is just the context, right? This is the context against which the Reformers spoke about the solas. This is the gospel, the true gospel versus what's being promoted in their day. There are three dimensions to the sacrament of penance, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Contrition means turning away from sin out of a genuine sense of having offended God. The second dimension, confession, is, of course, the act of confessing one sins. He says, Protestants have no issue with contrition and confession. Now, let me pause briefly here. Confession would look different for us than a Roman Catholic. He's just saying broadly, if you say uh, we're sorry about our sin, that's repentance, and we confess our sins, that's biblical. He's not, he's not saying the way the Roman Catholic Church does uh, confession is what he's promoting. But he says the concept generally, that's biblical. He says the issue is the third dimension of penance, which is satisfaction. 
Roman Catholics teach that for the sacrament to be complete, it is necessary for the penitent believer to do works of satisfaction, which satisfy the demands of God's justice. So a sinner is not off the hook when he confesses his sins. He still must do works of satisfaction. These works may be very small. The sinner may be required to say five Hail Marys or three Our Fathers. And I can tell you, as a little boy, he used to go into the dark cubicle and I would say to the priest, uh, I've sinned and it's been who knows how long since my last confession and this is what I've done. Then he would say, you're absolved. Sorry, I forget all the language. But then he would say, for your penance, say five Hail Marys and five Our Fathers. That was pretty typical. So you'd go out into the church, you'd kneel down, and you'd pray, well, those are meritorious works of righteousness that were demanded for forgiveness. So those are the little ones. He says, but if his sins are especially severe, he may be required to make a pilgrimage. Now, this is talking back into the Reformation era. I've never heard of a Roman Catholic making a pilgrimage today as a means of penance. Uh, pilgrimage or one of the favorite methods of doing works of satisfaction in the church historically has been and can you guess this one, has been the giving of alms. So Mother Church says to the priest, you've been a very naughty boy, Mike, again. And so for your penance, you're going to pay this many shekels, ducats, whatever. Alms, you're going to pay this much money, and that'll be your meritorious work of righteousness. Rome teaches that a work of satisfaction gives the penitent sinner, he says, congruous merit. You don't deserve it. It's not a saint who's getting God's favor. It's a sinner who doesn't deserve it. Congruous merit. Without that merit, the penitent sinner, no matter how much faith and trust he has in the atonement of Jesus Christ, cannot be justified. So he must do works of satisfaction in order to gain merit. So you can see Christ alone as the means of your uh, deliverance, your salvation, life is nowhere to be found in the Roman Catholic version of the gospel. Just as the adequate means of our justification is nowhere to be found in the Roman Catholic version of the gospel, in the time of the Reformation, it's not there today. And think about this for just a second. And this is what you'll always find. So if you're a good Roman Catholic, then or now, so let's say that you, you take the sacraments and you go to confession and you pray the right prayers and you get Mary, the Queen of Heaven, to intercede for you because she's Jesus' mother and she has more pull in heaven with Jesus than you do. And you get the saints in heaven. They were better than you too. They're in heaven and they're praying for you too. And you say, somebody says to you, are you going to heaven? And and you know what you say? I hope so. But I don't know. Because you don't know. Because you don't know how much is enough. You don't know if you have enough grace. You don't know if you've sinned too much. I think I told this at our home group last week. Uh, my grandfather, Jack Ridgway, died at home when his wife had gone away to a church service that night, died at home alone, fairly suddenly. And my grandmother's response, his wife of many years, you know what her response was? She was really ticked at him that he died at home alone. Do you know why? Because he didn't get the last rites. He didn't get extreme unction before he died. She was upset that he didn't hang on long enough to get the last sacrifice that the church could offer him before he went off. My father died, and we were talking around the table after his death, and talking to my, most of my family remains Roman Catholic, all my siblings, most of my siblings, and so 
having this discussion, and I said to one of my sisters, where do you think Dad is right now? Well, I assume he's in purgatory. I said, well, what do you make, you know, Jesus' atonement on the cross and everything? Well, he's still a bit dirty, and he's still got to be purged. And and that's the Roman Catholic view. That's the non-gospel that Rome preached then and preaches now. You have no confidence of heaven. You have no confidence that your sins are, in fact, forgiven or that you have a relationship now with God or that you'll have one forever. There's no, if you have a Jesus plus anything gospel, you have no gospel at all. And you have no confidence. There's no confidence to be found because something is left for you to do. And guys, if something's left for us to do, we are in trouble because we're going to blow it one way or another. So no confidence all. It's really a non-gospel. So, and this is important. Rome proclaimed and proclaims today the reality and the biblical teaching of the person of Jesus Christ. So if you ask a Roman Catholic, who is Jesus? God the Son, manifest on on the earth, became a man, truly our humanity, God of God. uh, Sorry, I'm forgetting the Nicene Creed here. Real man, real God, born of a virgin, no earthly father, human mother, all good. So what's the problem? They embrace the person of Christ. They do not embrace the work of Christ. And what you'll find is that false gospels always go to one or the other or both of those elements, denying the person of Christ or the work of Christ. So Roman Catholics embrace the person of Jesus, but not the work of Jesus. So it was this corruption, this non-gospel, that Luther and the other reformers spoke to and regained for us their spiritual heirs, the truth that Christ alone saves us. And our hope is ultimately in Christ alone. Now, most of what we do from here out, I think, is going to be common ground or familiar ground for you. But if you say, Mike, I know all that. I know these verses. I know these concepts. That's fine. Uh, Maybe the verses will go through your head later this week or think of them later when you're having a conversation with someone about salvation. I'm going to shift. That's the context. I want to shift gears and go into John's gospel for just a minute. The lessons we've been doing on the sufficiency and the authority of the Scriptures alone, faith alone, grace alone, and now Christ alone typically come out of Paul's epistles, and primarily Romans and Galatians. And there's a point because he's making these points very specifically in those gospels. I want to, I want to shift gears to pick up on the Numbers 21 passage and want to get to John's gospel to do that. When you read John's gospel, John is not presenting Jesus and the hope of eternal life in the legal kind of atmosphere that Paul does in the epistles. So Paul says, it's like you're in a court of law. You're guilty or you're not guilty. You're just or you're not just. You're righteous or you're not righteous. But in John's gospel, Jesus says you're dead or you're alive. You have life or you have death. That's the contrast in John's gospel. So in John 20, 31, the author of that gospel said this he said jesus did so many things that the world couldn't contain the books if they were all recorded but he says these are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name how do you get from spiritual life to spiritual death to spiritual life you believe john says it's the only reason i wrote this epistle if i'm interacting with someone who's not a christian and you want to present the gospel clearly the person and work of christ is in john's gospel That's the great place to go. Jesus' offer of eternal life in John's gospel 
is a parallel to Paul's use of the language of justification in the epistles. So for Jesus to say, you've moved from death to life, something has to happen to our sins. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans and Galatians. And we'll mention it here, but Jesus has become the satisfaction for God's justice against our sins. And that's why Jesus can offer eternal life. So they're essentially saying the same thing. They're getting to the same place. In the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3, and this is one of the better known passages in the Bible, remember Jesus says to Nick, unless you are born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. You've got to have this spiritual new birth. But right after that, Jesus goes back to the illustration in Numbers 21. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So Jesus takes that image of the serpent in the wilderness. And everyone knew, the Jews that would have heard this know, if I look to the symbol of God's judgment and redemption in that serpent on the pole between heaven and earth, I get healed. And Jesus picks that up and says, like the serpent, I'm going to be hoisted between heaven and earth. And whoever looks to me, whoever believes in me will be saved. Now this implies exactly the same thing that Numbers 21 did. You can do everything else but the one thing God said, and you're going to die. You're going to stay dead. You're going to stay spiritually dead and separated from God. If you do the one thing God says to do, You'll be saved, and you'll be saved not a little. You'll be saved entirely. So the image for the Jews on this would have been stark and real. It would come straight out of their memory, this great image. Jesus says, I'm like that. I'm hoisted between heaven and earth. I'm the symbol, right? Cursed is the one who dies on a cross. Jesus is the picture of God's judgment on our sin and the picture of our liberation. So Jesus takes that image and says, I'm that. I'm the fulfillment of that. Anyone who looks to me, he believes in me, he'll be saved. Not a little, not just a lot, entirely. In fact, you get on to that with the next verse in John 3.16, the best known verse probably in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, for this purpose, for this reason, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How do you go from perishing to have eternal life? You believe. This is faith alone. Belief, the Greek term for believe, believe and faith is essentially the same pistis or a variation of that. You believe. Verse 17, God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, through Christ, not through a church, not through a pope, not through a priest, not through any other mechanism or means, but through Christ. Verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. That's getting to more of the, the language of Paul, isn't it? You've passed out. In fact, John says in John 5, you've passed out of judgment into life. You no longer live in the arena of even potential judgment. You've passed out of that. You're into the sphere of life. Then he winds down chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you believe in the Son? You have eternal life. He concludes, whoever does not obey the Son, and obedience here, friends, is not an act of righteousness, it is faith. Romans 1.5 has the same language. Paul there calls it the obedience of faith. The obedience that is faith. 
that we simply believe. It's not a meritorious act. We simply believe. We look and we live. Whoever does not obey the Son by faith shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We're all under God's judgment. We're, we're like those guys that were bit. We've been bit. Sin has bitten us. And if we don't do anything, we're going to die. And if we do everything but the one thing God says, we're going to die. Do the one thing and you'll live and you'll live entirely and forever. So Jesus' own words and the words of God through the New Testament writers attest that Jesus alone saves and he saves completely. And I'm going to go down a hit list and I'll just try and highlight these briefly. Uh, John 14, 6, and put these in the context of Christ alone as the means of our salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to get to the Father, where do you go? You go through Christ. Christ is the only way to the Father. Only way to the Father. By the way, um, some of you are old enough to remember the tracks. I don't know if they still get distributed today. Campus Crusade and others use them. There's a chasm and the man's on one side looking at a chasm too deep and too wide to get over and God's on the other side. And you say, well, how does man get across this wide chasm? And picture the cross, Jesus Christ crucified is the way across that. That's what this says. Jesus is the adequate way. He is the bridge to get you from death to life with the Father. He's the only way. In Acts 4, verse 12, Peter was talking to the Jewish leaders, and you know, they're not buying the Jesus thing yet, are they? They helped crucify him, and they're, they're haranguing the apostles who are now coming out, and guys are getting healed, and they're preaching in Jesus' name. Peter says this to them, there's salvation in no one else. Nobody else can save you. There's no name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. A name is a person in the Scripture. There's no other name. There's no other person. There's no other place that you can be saved except through Christ. And remember, he's speaking, guys, who crucified, who condemned Jesus. There's no other way except Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, these are all variations on the same theme. Uh, Paul says there to Tim, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom of all. You may be familiar in, in Roman Catholic practice and theology, <clears throat> you actually have many mediators. Mary is a mediator. You pray to Mary, so Mary will become your mediator to Jesus or to the Father. Or you pray to dead people, just like you, saints. You pray to them. You light candles to them. You ask them to intercede for you. They become your intermediary as well which is all a denial that there's only one there's only one link between us and the father and it's not a dead person a saint and it's not Jesus virgin mother it's Christ alone it's Christ alone I love the language here in Hebrews 7 it's talking about the high priest and you remember you'd have one high priest at a time that gets a little shaky in the New Testament times, because Romans were appointing one priest and then another, it was political gain and financial payoffs. But here, the writer says this, the former Jewish priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood, and this whole epistle shows Jesus is the fulfillment, the better fulfillment of all the elements of the Jewish law. He's better than a Jewish high priest. He holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Jesus never dies. So what's the consequence of that? He is able to save to the uttermost. 
And that word means completely or entirely. Those who draw near to God through him, he always lives to make intercession for them. This text just says, you've got a better high priest than the Jews ever could have imagined back in the day. Jesus lives forever, he never dies, and he has the ability to be your mediator to the Father forever. So when he saves you, when that high priesthood, Jesus' high priesthood saves you, you're saved entirely. And last along this list, Romans 3, 23 through 25, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're justified by his grace as a gift. We talked about grace last week and again this morning in Sunday school. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's only one means of redemption. God's grace provides the redemption that Christ paid for, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That Those verses you have, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone in God's word, revealed here in God's word alone. Jesus is the only means of propitiation, big word, 25 cent word. That means he's the only one that can resolve the conflict between two parties, us and God. Jesus is the only means of that. So our sins to be truly dealt with before a holy God you had to have somebody come in in your place, right? And we've got a problem with that. We're all sinners. Everybody that came from Adam and Eve sins. So you could never have a mere mortal act as the means for your justification or mine. Couldn't happen. If we died, we'd die for our own sins. And that's the necessity of the incarnation. God the Son comes down to earth, puts on our humanity. No human father, but a virgin mother. And then becomes the means by which we are saved. So... That's what we needed. We needed the satisfaction for our sin that none of us could provide. God provides that in Christ. So summing some of these up, and then we'll get down to walking in the benefit of some of this to close up. Uniquely and solely, Jesus was and is the only possible means of salvation. You can't get it anyplace else. No other avenue. Jesus and Jesus only can save Any gospel, any religion that preaches a means back to the Father outside of Jesus Christ alone offers no gospel and no salvation. And that's where we need to hang our hat. In fact, in Hebrews 2, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Can you imagine that we come to God and we say, Jesus thinks that God the Son came to earth and became one of us and paid for our sins on the cross and now we're going to do our best to get into heaven? Can you imagine what an assault that is to the integrity of God? Why did Jesus die? (laughs) Memory stirs. I talk about this. I had a conversation with my family members. I had been a Christian not very long and this was a trap and I knew what I was doing and poor, poor family members didn't. So I said, you know, the normal question, if you die, where are you going? I hope to go to heaven. I said, great, you know why? Well, you know, I've tried to live a good life and be a good person. That's the typical answer you're going to get. And I said, well, you know, you when you get to heaven, you should just tell Jesus, you know, he didn't need to die because you were good enough on your own. <laughs> Three shades of red. Ooh, I don't remember what was said after that, but it wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. That was the setup. Any gospel that's Jesus plus me something i do something i bring something somebody else does for me it's no gospel won't give you any no confidence no way to get there guys we are saved or we are lost entirely on a relationship with jesus christ who's the only possible 
Savior of the world. I want to go through these things, and this is where I hope that we live. It's fine for us, most of us here, we have come to faith in Christ, and we know we're in a relationship, a living relationship. And that's great. Do we live in the good of it? We know we're saved by God's faith, by faith alone, God's grace alone, and Christ alone. Do we live in the good of that? And that's a little bit of what I want to talk about as we close down. By the way, 40 years ago, Thursday, October 5th, 1976, uh, I went from death to life. I was lost and then I was found. And I was semi-religious, really absolutely a debauched pagan, but I was semi-religious because I was still a Roman Catholic. And I got spiritual life. And it was through the four spiritual laws laws that a guy at the K-State Union presented to me uh, with their little survey. And I went through it and I got it. Guys, I will tell you this. I look back on notes I took in a Roman Catholic theology class, and the gospel was present in the notes that I'd taken. It was actually present. What I would say that, uh, not clearly, I want to be clear on this, it wasn't clear. It was shrouded, it was overborne by all the other stuff. By the saints and the statues and the sacraments and the priests and the what-ifs and you name it. It had sort of been in there in germ form. It just was anything but clear. Couldn't see it. And in fact, you know, we still try and, Kathy and I try and hope you do too. You try and share the gospel, the hope that we have with others, right? Where are you at? What's your hope of, of heaven and relationship with God based on? And you get the opportunity to bring these things up again, you know, bring up those. It's not about what we do. It's about what God does. And if you're Roman Catholic, it's not just Roman Catholics, by the way, Right? Many, many people claim some kind of Christian faith that don't believe in Jesus alone as the means of their salvation. That is not the gospel. You don't just have to be Roman Catholic to be in this trap. So that was true for me 40 years ago. If you're not sure, if someone asks you the question, the million-dollar question, if you died today, where would you go and why? It's not necessarily the best question, frankly, but it's a clarifying question. If you say or think anything other than Jesus died for my sins... I've trusted Christ to save me. Something along that line, I just caution you that you probably don't have the real gospel. You probably don't have Christ. You probably still stand under the condemnation that we all justly start under. And the answer to the question is Christ alone saves. That can be true for any of us. It can be true for you today. So let's look at some of the blessings Jesus Christ alone ushers us into. If you've trusted Christ... Alone for salvation, you're saved, and you're saved entirely and forever. Listen to this from John 10. Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they'll never perish. There's two elements of this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus says, I give you life to the ages, not death, life forever and that life will be with me. No one can take you out of my hand. No one can take you out of the hand of the Father. Christ alone saves us entirely and forever. And your study sheet has a reference to Romans 8 there as well. Uh, The means of restoring broken fellowship. Now, we talked about this a bit in Sunday school this morning. This is a big one for Christians, guys. This is huge. The terms of restoring broken fellowship. All of our sins were borne by Jesus on the cross. You and I hadn't been thought of, much less sin, when Jesus died. All of our sins were future. They were all born. The cost of that was all born by Jesus on the cross. When you and I sin, when we fail to live up to God's standards and we sin, we haven't lost our salvation. 
You can't commit as a child of God a mortal sin. When we talk to people about eternal security, which is one of the statements in our statement of belief, say it's something like this. Uh, The prodigal son in that story was always the son of his father. He couldn't not be the son of his father. He could live like it. He could reject the grace of living in his father's household, but he could never become not his father's son because that's by birth. That's by point of origin. You and I can't lose that. If we've been born again, John 3 if we pass out of judgment into life, if we have eternal life now, which is a relationship with God through Christ, you don't lose your salvation. But what do you lose when we sin? We lose the pleasure of God's fellowship. God's heart towards us remains constant. Can't change, ever. But what's happened? Our sin has alienated us. It's a little bit like the prodigal turning our back, walking away from that direct fellowship with the Father. So what do we do when we do that? Do we just feel bad? I feel bad about that. Gosh, I feel bad. That doesn't get us very far, does it? But what what does? Confession, right? Repentance and confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just based on what Christ has already done. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from the unrighteousness that's part of that. So for the Christian, we sin and we sin all the time, guys. We don't even have to try. James says, we all sin, we sin a lot, not a little. What do we do when that happens? Feeling bad doesn't help us. The sorrow of the world, I feel bad, doesn't help us. Repentance, Lord, I agree with you. I see this is sin, it's bad. I'm dishonoring you. I'm confessing that and I'm thanking you for the restoration I have because of what Jesus has already done. Christ alone provides real forgiveness for every sin. We need to know that. This is something that we all struggle with. I don't know any Christian who doesn't struggle with sin. If you say you don't, you're lying, and that's a sin. <laughs> Romans 6.6 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Before Christ, friends, we are slaves to sin. It's all we can do. We sin in every word, thought, deed we do all contaminated by self-interest and sin. Can't be otherwise. Jesus says that he not only died in our place as our substitute, Paul tells us that you also died with him. And because you died with him, we can't develop this this morning, but this is Romans 6, 7, and 8. Because you died with Christ, sin no longer has power to make you obey it. Do you know that when Christians sin, we choose to? That might be out of ignorance, But as often as not, we're choosing to sin. We don't have to. Now, most of us are living with that chain still in one piece in various areas of our life. And the thing to do isn't to resolve to be a better person. The thing to do is to go back to the Word and see what God has said is true of us. I have died with Christ. Sin doesn't have power on me. I want to renew my mind, and by faith I want to claim what's true of me because God said it is. In Christ, sin has no power over me. So Christ alone gives a real way to avoid sin in our lives. And one of the things we're going to talk about at the men's advance is that very topic. And the last one is this. Uh, My meeting the other morning uh, with Mark, he said, how are you doing? And I said, you know what, I'm ready to die. And he said, I know just what you mean. And it's not because I have a bad life. I have a lovely wife. I love my church. I'm blessed in crazy ways. It's my sin. It's my challenge every day with myself. It's just the challenges of life in this body. 
It's like I'm looking forward to being away from myself. My old self, my sinful self, you know, all that's gone. I mean, I can't wait. That'll be great. The Christian has a certainty for the future that you can't have apart from Christ alone. This is from Titus 2. He says, waiting for our blessed hope. What is that? Waiting, this, this expectation for something ahead. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John says when we see Him, we're going to be just like Him. That old sinful self gone, that new self present. Absolutely. So Christ alone is our future hope to see Him and be like Him forever. Nothing else and no one else can give you that. Christ gives you that hope. If I live for another 10 years or 20 or whatever, great. Paul says hopefully that's service in God's name in the lives of others. But if I died today, Paul says, Philippians, that's even better. Why? Because I get to go and be with Christ. The Christian has a hope that no one else has. I'm going to see Christ. I'm going to be like Him. And I'm going to be with Him in the presence of the Father forever. You can't get that anyplace else. On the authority of the Scriptures, by faith alone, in God's grace alone, through Christ alone, that's what we have. Close with Jude 24 and 25 which is, I think, appropriate to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. That's us. Before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Father, we offer ourselves to You in the wonderful name of Jesus. We thank You for the complete salvation we have at Your cost received by nothing more than the arms of faith, dependent, Lord, solely on what Jesus, your Son, your beloved Son, has done in our place on the cross. Lord, we look to Him to live today, and we ask You to help us to enlarge Christ in our minds and our hearts, Lord, and give You the glory that is Your due in His name. Amen.